You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. And this morning we'll be looking together at the first six verses of Acts chapter 20. You'll find this on page 929 of the Pew Bible. Acts chapter 20 and verses 1 through 6. And it's page 929 of the Pew Bible. Hear the word of God. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Peter, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Well, we have seen how Paul had labored in the gospel ministry among the Ephesians for three years. And his efforts had been extremely fruitful so that he persuaded a great many people. So fruitful had been his labors that the silver shrine business in Ephesus had been slowing down. Profits had been plummeting. And the silversmith Demetrius rallied his colleagues and he caused a riot. And perhaps this was an indication of providence that it was time for Paul to leave. However he viewed it, Paul was ready to depart northwest for Macedonia. But before he did that, we're told that he called together the local disciples to say farewell. Goodbye. And it must have been a bittersweet occasion because after three years of gospel ministry, their relationships must have been very close. And I'm sure that most, if not all, of those disciples have been converted under Paul's ministry. So here their father in the faith was leaving them to labor elsewhere. And as it turned out, the Apostle Paul never again returned to Ephesus. Luke tells us the Apostle departed in verse 1 only after encouraging them. And it's interesting to me that no specifics are given regarding the content of his encouragement. But I think that it is safe to assume that it was based upon the gospel. Nothing strengthens the saints like the word in general and the gospel in particular. What else could be so encouraging to recent converts in the faith? Do you remember what the apostle said to the Corinthians? I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, 
that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that's the heart of the gospel. We are saved on the basis of those historical events. It's not based on human reason or human imagination or human ingenuity or emotion. These are well-attested historical facts that involve the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for our sins. We have now been justified by his blood. His death, burial, and resurrection were the truths which Paul preached over and over again. And it's the story of the greatest life that's ever been lived. It's a history of plain facts. So the core of the gospel is not morality, and it's not philosophy, and it's not even theology. (laughs) It's just plain, simple history. And the meaning of Christ's death is duly noted, as Paul says, that he died for our sins. That's what makes it good news. For our sins. That's what encourages the saints. And all three of these historical events are in accord with the Scripture. And it was with these that he wanted their minds to be especially occupied with. And I'm confident that Paul's encouragement was framed around these redemptive events. Death, burial, and resurrection. If anybody ever asks you what the gospel is, that's the gospel. That's what he proclaimed wherever he went, the glad tidings of salvation, whether it was in the synagogue or the marketplace or the workshop or the hall of Tyrannus. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It didn't matter where or when or to whom Paul was preaching. The encouragement that he gave consistently was rooted in the gospel. And that's because nothing is more important. And that's because nothing is more pressing He said to the Corinthians, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And is it not wonderful if we stop and just contemplate that for a second, that after man's radical disobedience, that God is willing to be reconciled? Adam's sin was heinous. And every sin after that first one is also deeply heinous. But God is willing to be reconciled to sinners, which is far more than I can say for angels. Do you know what Peter says about them? God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. But God is willing to be reconciled to sinners. And this he does freely and requires nothing of us but faith in his son. That's it. He demands no satisfaction to justice from us, but only from Christ. And as the Holy Spirit accompanies the gospel, it changes our hearts and reforms our lives. And I think this is how Paul encouraged those disciples from Ephesus. On the basis of this kind of encouragement, he exhorted them to remain faithful In spite of your persecution, be loyal to Christ and live a life worthy of this high calling. And he said the same thing as he went through the regions on his way to Greece. Here, probably during winter, 
Likely in Corinth, he spent three months and never one to miss an opportunity. I'm sure Paul ministered there as well. And that's probably where the collection was taken up for the saints in Jerusalem. And this is what he and his traveling companions would transport to the mother church. And as spring arrived, he prepared to set sail for Syria on his way home. But interesting, the Jews plotted against him. So he changed his travel plans. And Barclay says this, and I think he's right. Often, I quote, from foreign ports, Jewish pilgrim ships left for Syria to take pilgrims to the Passover, and Paul must have intended to sail on one. On such a ship, it would have been the easiest thing in the world for the fanatical Jews to arrange that Paul should disappear overboard and never be heard of again. Paul was a man who always walked with his life in his hands. So rather than sailing to Syria, he took the long way around through Macedonia. And what follows then is a detailed list of the Apostle Paul's traveling companions. It was rare that he ever traveled alone. He usually had colleagues. On his first missionary journey, he was accompanied by Barnabas and Mark, you'll remember. On his second missionary journey, there were Silas, Timothy, and Luke. And at the end of this, his third missionary journey, he has seven companions. And these different men represented different regions of the ancient world. No coincidence. So Peter, Macedonia, Aristarchus and Secundus, Thessalonica, Gaius, Galatia, Timothy, Lystra, Tychicus and Trophimus, Ephesus. And according to Luke, these companions went ahead and waited at Troas, and it seems they were planning to go along with him to Jerusalem. So what we have here when Luke joins up with them is an eyewitness account of what happened. And from Troas, they sailed to Philippi and then to Troas, where they stayed seven days. All of these traveled together, presumably delegated various churches. And together they presented this united front. And so first, I think what this tells us, this very fascinating passage, if you ask me, the Catholicity of the church. Did you notice that? Catholicity, it's universal. Delegates from Greece, both sides of the Aegean Sea, inland and coastal Asia Minor. And in the delegation were included both Jews and Gentiles of the Christian faith. And they all had an interest in this trip to Jerusalem and a part to play in it. And it manifested the fact that they all belonged to the Holy Catholic Church. We recited this morning the Apostles' Creed. And we said together in part, I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. And insofar as you and I make this confession, we affirm this Catholicity. Our Lord told a parable that affirms the reality of that important truth. In Matthew 13, he said, The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And that net is the visible Catholic church, which is now filling up with converts. Converts of every kind. Converts from every nation under heaven. Not all of them are sincere, granted. 
And when that net is full, it'll be drawn to shore for the great separation. The good fish will be kept, the believers. The bad fish will be thrown away, the hypocrites in the church. But the point is that the net is one. The church is comprised of people from all nations. It is indeed one holy, Catholic, visible church that spans the globe. Some are only Christians outwardly, others are Christians inwardly. We know that. And until the great separation, they will serve and worship together in the same church. But within her walls, this one in particular and the whole church in general, within her walls, we enjoy the communion of saints and the ordinary means of grace. In the church, Christ offers grace to all the members of it in the ministry of the gospel. And he testifies that whoever believes in him will be saved. And he excludes no one. So we affirm not only the Catholicity of the church, but the necessity of Christ's visible body. She is the one commissioned by the Lord to make disciples of all nations. To her have been entrusted the word and sacrament for this great task. And she is the bride of Christ and the wife for whom he shed his blood. Paul says Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see, salvation is both an individual and a corporate matter. I hope you know that. God justifies each one of us individually who trusts in and relies upon Jesus. We affirm that. But we are not to live and learn individually, but as members of the body. We need one another. Life is full of tribulations. We need each other. No one can choose. Nobody has the authority to choose to be a maverick Christian. For example... We are called to fulfill our duty and to enjoy our privilege of corporate worship. It's one of the things that we do as a body. And we're equipped, each one of us, to serve and to build up the body of Christ. That's why we read Ephesians 4. We're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Every one of us is necessary for the body of Christ. And God loves the devotions of his children, those things you do in your closet. He loves those. But he especially loves the family gathering. Psalm 87 The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. And I always wondered about that text. Why love Zion's gates more than Jacob's houses? It's all Israel. Well, because that's where they gathered. That's where they assembled. Our king summons us together on the Lord's day so that we can receive help at the throne of grace. And there's something very special about worshiping as an assembly. And I know not everybody's convinced of that truth. I find this the case, especially in our day. Perhaps you've heard this from somebody as I have heard it from somebody telling me. Being in a garage 
does not make you a car. And being in a church does not make you a Christian. Okay, in one sense, that's true. The spirit, not the church, makes a believer. God is the one who enlightens the mind and renews the will and draws the heart. I know that. And I suspect there are many true followers who have not yet joined the visible church. I get that. But in another sense, that saying is wrong. The importance of the church, I believe, is hard to exaggerate. Hebrews 10, listen to the exhortation. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's coming. The Lord does not save us to live life only as individual believers. He redeems us to become holy and blameless and full of good works. And his spirit endows you and I with gifts that we use to help build up the body. I hope that's why you're here. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Gifts are not for the mere honor and advantage of the individual. Gifts are given for the church. Various delegates from different places came together with Paul for the same cause. And likewise, we join with brethren around the globe for the cause of the gospel. Yes, we may be distinguished by national boundaries, but we have the same spirit. Every Christian of whatever stripe is taught to pray, thy kingdom come. And it implies that Satan's kingdom is to be destroyed by the power of Christ. And he's pleased to enlist the church in tearing down the devil's strongholds. This worldly devices will not work and human methods are powerless. The devil's kingdom is to be destroyed by the power of the spirit working with the word. And therefore the gospel must be preached to all believers and all unbelievers and God's elect are to be gathered and perfected in the church. She's truly Catholic, and she's comprised of believers from all over the globe. That's the first truth. But there's a second and a third. But number two, it reminds us of the fruitfulness of the tr true gospel ministry, doesn't it? Paul encouraged the disciples in Ephesus, Macedonia, and then Greece. He and his co-laborers evangelized all these regions, and many were converted. I honestly think that all seven of these men who accompanied him are the fruits of his missionary labors. And it's the consequence of the crucified Christ who's drawing people to himself. He chooses to employ faithful gospel ministries to produce fruit. He could do it all himself. Jesus could do it. He doesn't need our efforts and he doesn't need our service. But he's pleased to grant us the privilege of planting and watering. We get to labor in his vineyard. We get to rejoice in the spiritual harvest of fruit. Look at Paul's ministry. It's an illustration that he didn't labor in vain. And not only were these seven men the fruit of Paul's ministry, but then they became missionaries themselves. And that's the way God works in and through the church, by multiplication.
Paul says to Timothy at one point, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And it goes on. It's the chain of discipleship. We receive and we transmit. Timothy heard the gospel from Paul and others in turn heard from Timothy. And it's not only a privilege to hear the gospel, it's a privilege to transmit it, isn't it? Have you ever had that experience? I've heard some of you. The excitement and the enthusiasm when you've had the opportunity to share the gospel with a colleague or a friend or a fellow student. We get to participate in this great gospel cause for the glory of Christ. And only eternity itself will reveal the way in which God made you and I fruitful. And what gladness will there be? What great rejoicing will there be on that day? Have you ever thought about that? You know, when Japan surrendered, World War II ended. And President Harry Truman then made an announcement. On August 14th at 7 p.m., President Truman calmly read a statement declaring the end of World War II. And when he was done, history tells us that President Truman broke into a smile. And what followed was music and dancing and celebrating of every kind. And all of the heroics over the past four or five years were rehearsed. Well, that was just a dim illustration of the kind of celebrating that we're going to do on the Day of Judgment. We're going to rehearse with one another all of the watering, all of the planting that any of us had ever done. We're going to celebrate in the great victory gala even that cup of cold water that was given to one of the least of these. And isn't it wonderful how God enlists our meager efforts and then rewards them? <laughs> I, can't, I don't understand how he does that. My efforts are so meager. I don't serve him with a tenth of the zeal that I should be serving him with. But he's pleased to reward it simply because he's gracious. And it seems to me there's going to be many surprises on that great and awesome day. And perhaps foremost will be the sheer magnitude of his blessing. King Jesus will reward his grace in us with an even greater measure of his grace. Isn't that what he means in Matthew 25? When he says to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. And you and I on that day are going to be compelled to say this, Lord, if I had known you were this gracious, I would have worked so much harder. But then third, this passage reminds us, I think, about the charity of sincere brethren. Not only did the local churches give money, but they provided manpower. Did you notice? And it seems likely to me that these seven men were leaders in various congregations. They were faithful men to whom the things of Christ had been entrusted, and the churches sent them as delegates to Jerusalem to provide support. And I believe it's a great illustration of Christian charity, brotherly love. The churches 
gave not only of their treasure, but the time and talents of their leaders. And it's so easy, isn't it, for us to become selfishly preoccupied with our own local church. Every church has this temptation, not just ours. But because of the Catholicity of the church and the fruit of the gospel, we have to look outside these four walls. And I think it's one of the great advantages of the Presbyterian polity because we're told we're connectional churches. We're connected with one another. A common government, a Christian cause, an ecclesiastical fellowship. And there's a clear sense that among the churches, we're in this together. We share our financial resources. We share our church leaders. We share prayer support. We prayed for one this morning. Take, for example, the charity extended even now in our presbytery. Two of our ruling elders, Elder Miller, Elder Gilliland, Two of our ruling elders do double duty in serving as leaders. You may not know that. Ray and Ernie serve not only this congregation, but Story Church in Mayfield Heights. Until God raises up elders in that church, these men are borrowed to help lead the flock. And Redeemer Church also helps that church financially because we're connectional. We're also served as the session for our daughter church, Christ Presbyterian, because we're connectional. So like the delegation led by Paul, we give our time and our talent and our treasure to things outside of this church. But these are just two examples, and there are many types of charity in the church. Think of our nursery volunteers who care for the most vulnerable. That's charitable. What a wonderful service that is. We do it out of love for weary parents who need a respite. The Catholicity of the church, the fruitfulness of the ministry, and the charity of sincere brethren are all implicated in this passage. And in light of this, I think we should rejoice in the inestimable privileges that we enjoy. We have been enlisted in a cause that is so much bigger than us. We're part of the Catholic body of Christ, We ourselves are evidence of the fruitfulness of the ministry. As believers, we've been received into the number of God's children. And as such, we've been given the family name to bear the name of Christ. His spirit is given to us and he dwells forevermore within our hearts. And God extends to you and I his fatherly care and his special administration. He is specially concerned about his children. We're adopted sons. We're heirs of every... Incredible. We were by nature children of wrath, bond slaves to Satan, and justly liable to all punishments in this world and the next. And by nature, there is nothing good in us. But amazingly, out of mere love and mercy, God is pleased to redeem us. And through Christ, by his spirit, he raises us up out of the miry clay and welcomes us into his family. And the world thinks we're nuts. They think we're crazy, heirs of God. And I can understand their disbelief, can't you? I mean, it sounds so good to be true. Come on, 
Children of God, get real. What are you thinking to yourself? Well, you know what? While it is almost unimaginable, the Bible reveals that that is true. Heirs of God. Fellow heirs with Christ. And so you and I have every reason this morning to rejoice and to be glad because it won't be long. Paul says salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believe. And may God use this to sustain us and encourage us to persevere in the faith. Amen. listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.